Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I am Daniel Janine, a producer here at Eater. Daniel, this week on the show, we're going to switch things up a little bit. We are going to focus on what is or what could be next for the restaurant industry. So our writers and editors put together an amazing package that ran last week uh, talking about what an ideal future of the restaurant industry could look like in 2025 based on... uh, a bunch of interviews with 23 chefs and activists and big thinkers and academics and critics. Uh, And we're going to excerpt some of them here. Uh, Just as a wide overview, you know, everything, the restaurant industry has been completely uprooted, devastated, decimated. There hasn't been any kind of monumental shift like this in what the future looks like, at least, you know, in, in our lifetimes, I think you can assume. Yeah, I think this is a huge turning point and to your point will be so devastating and has been so devastating for so many small business owners and so many people in the industry. I think the one potentially positive thing to think about is that if this is uh, a moment to stop and think about what's been wrong for so long. If this did unearth all these inequities that have been there, maybe this is a moment where you can idealize what the rebirth should look like. Not saying like all these things are going to happen. All of the things that we want to happen, some of them are impossible, but it is a good time to talk about what could be. Yeah. So we are compiling a few of our favorite snippets from the interviews and we are going to run them right now. Uh, Amanda, what do we have up first? So up first, we are going to hear an excerpt from the interview that our staff writer Jenny Zhang did with San Francisco restaurant critic Soleil Ho. And she talks about her point of view on this moment and uh, where the industry can go. Here's Soleil. I think that the the confluence, right, of the pandemic and the national uprisings and protests, right, and um, a heightened awareness of racial inequity, wealth inequity, all of that stuff, right? We're in this perfect storm of things that are so fascinating and so stimulating for so many people who have maybe previously not had these conversations, you know, or done the kind of activism that people are doing. Um, I'm encouraged to see a greater emphasis on mutual aid, for instance, on the ground uh, among people. And certainly there's a lot of cooking that's happening in that context, a lot of food distribution and sharing in that context. We're seeing those fridges, for instance, pop up on street corners in Oakland, San Francisco, New York, and other places. And I'm really encouraged by that. And I'm encouraged by the cultural sensitivity that those fridges are also being maintained with. You know, they're providing a lot of things that are catered to the neighborhoods. Um, The Fridge and the Mission, for instance, which is a very like heavy Latinx neighborhood, you know, they stock it with um, 
ingredients that are relevant, you know, masica, for instance, um, tortillas, that sort of stuff. And the things that I find really exciting too is, are like the, the, the ways in which the food industry has also stepped up, you know, through programs like SF New Deal, for instance, Frontline Foods, um, to find other ways of existing outside of like a retail, um, you know, outside of a retail identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that the lessons that they'll take away from this long term will be really meaningful. I think not necessarily charity, but just community oriented work is going to be a bigger emphasis. And I hope that, you know, because it's so meaningful, because it really does help people. And if you can find a way to square your operation and like make it work with that model built in, I think that is really great. Um, so yeah, I think like other places like Reams, for instance, in the mission are really brainstorming alternative modes of ownership um, in terms of, you know, making things a bit more cooperative, you know what I mean? Like taking the lessons of collectively owned restaurants and food outlets and integrating them even further into the restaurant model. I think there's more skepticism of the brigade model of the chef model that I think is a long time coming. You know, the brigade model worked for a while um, in certain contexts, but it doesn't work for everyone. And I think that organizing things according to that very militaristic sort of system and that hierarchy just might not fly right now, especially because considering we're seeing this sort of reckoning within the food industry of, you know, chefs and chef owners and restaurant owners who have taken advantage of that model in ways that are really not positive Mm -hmm. or or good for workers. So I think greater skepticism, you know, like you, I'm a pessimist, um, but I celebrate the skepticism. You know, I celebrate the questioning of things that we've assumed to be just a priori, just givens in the industry and in this world. Um, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And then, so you mentioned you also have, you know, these are the the kind of like promising signs you're seeing right now. You mentioned you also have maybe a, a idealistic vision of this future 2025. Do you mind going into that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, I mean, ideally, God. Yeah. I'm put aside reality. <laughs> okay. yeah. Let's please do that. <laughs> I think the stimulus has given us a really practical vision of what UBI could mean for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a proponent. I'm pretty... I mean, I'm pretty transparent about that. I'm a proponent of Medicare for all, um, UBI, just a greater social safety net that includes undocumented people and people who have had interactions with our carceral system. Um, In an ideal world, right, like we wouldn't even be worried about restaurants staying afloat or people having to make the choice of working versus preserving their health because they would be able to provide for themselves regardless of their work situation. Um, I think there's greater understanding of that viewpoint at this point, right? Where everyone has experienced, okay, the, the not means tested payout and seen like what it meant to them. Um, nobody has freaked out about it. It seems like, you know, it, it worked out pretty okay. Mm-hmm. Um, considering, all the other really awful things that uh, 
made the implementation really annoying. But I think that if we come into a better understanding of like what a social safety net means, right? Like what bare minimum we are entitled to and what we can ask of our governments, um, you know, the fact that we can put people who are houseless into housing, like so relatively quickly, Mm -hmm. if we just have the political will and the motivation to do so, like these problems are fake, you know? Um, And we can solve those problems. And I think the pandemic and the movement that kind of came out of it have taught us that these problems, there's not this like immovable force that is preventing us from solving these problems. We can do it. So that was Soleil. Next up, we are going to hear from Chef Eric Rivera in conversation with our writer, Nicholas Moncal-Battelle. Uh, Eric Rivera runs a restaurant in Seattle called Otto, and he is known for um, being super innovative and outspokenly progressive. So I think he has a lot of really interesting ideas of where this industry should and could go. I think there's going to be a shift of the industry and kind of I mean, for me, I'm, I'm like, I'm super small. We have less than seven employees. So, um, but we're definitely punching above our weight class right now um, with scaling things out and being more accessible to more people. Um, and I think for me, it's, it's compartmentalizing that and understanding what that means to people. Um, so it's delivery method. The, the function of my head of where we need to be at doesn't necessarily mean driving people to the restaurant anymore. Um, I think that's going to be sticking around with us for a long time. I don't think people are still going to be comfortable even two, three years after this to be totally open to having full on contact at restaurants like it used to be. Um, so for me, it's really, you know, my big shift was always have a chef's table, have a dining room, have all this stuff. Now it's like, this maybe have a chef's table, (laughs) but everything else kind of working beyond that. Um, because then I feel like that's more, uh, that's going to be more of the lingo that's happening for me. So we might, you know, I'll probably won't renew the lease here at this space. Um, I'll probably go find something like a warehouse to house all of our, um, to go take out delivery things. Cause it's less expensive <laughs> that way. Uh, and then as far as something that we could do for like a chef's table, that would probably be housed in that, but not open to the public. Okay, absolutely. So, so new ways of, of serving customers, um, you know, it's, it sounds like you'll, you'll probably continue a lot of the sort of experimentation uh, that, yeah. that you're sort of yeah. known for. Um, yeah. do, you think that's a, do you think that's a trend we'll see across the industry? Do you think people will have to continue adapting to, to meet customers or do you think the pace might relax by 2025? What do you think? I, I think so. I think it's going to continue to have to figure out where the get in is for people. There's been a lot of market saturation over the past, uh, you know, seven to 10 years with everything booming. And so, you know, seeing restaurant groups expand from one to three to seven to 20 restaurants really quickly. Um, that kind of hurt the industry is very similar to um, the last recession where it was all mortgage based and homes and people had multiple homes all of a sudden. And I mean, before you knew it, everybody had a house, um, whether it, it should have been the case or not. Um, we're kind of seeing that with restaurants now where there's a lot of market saturation and you're seeing bigger groups kind of having to fold upon themselves and go back to having, you know, 20 employees instead of 800 employees. Um, so it's, 
definitely easier for someone like me to keep going. Um, but that's a function of keeping it small and really like being independent is my biggest thing. Uh, and not, not allowing like outside voices in, <laughs> meaning financially. I think that's a bigger thing too, that I think a lot of chefs who kind of are frankly losing their asses right now are going to realize that maybe it's not wise to seek so much investment and, you know, doing the deals with the devil in order to get themselves kind of pushed into the stratosphere of, of the restaurant industry. Yeah. Yeah. I was reading your, I think it was your most recent uh, op-ed for Eater, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, big name chefs and sort of their position right now. Um, yeah. And, and I'm wondering, you know, if, if those voices do, fade a little bit, you know, if they're over leveraged or if they, you know, fade for other reasons, um, you know, what are, what are the voices of, of 2025, you know, like who's going to be leading the industry then? And, and where are those voices going to come from? I would like it to be more diverse. I would like people who are trying um, to make a name for themselves, be as respected as people who um, have figured out a way to kind of steal cuisine from people. <laughs> um, you know, I'd, I'd like to see people who actually, don't necessarily have the standardized ways of cooking be celebrated in the same way. Um, it doesn't all have to be, you know, shit with tweezers or having a 20, 10, $20 million restaurant build out uh, or having 200 employees and like 150 of them work there for free just cause it's a cool place. Um, so I definitely like to see, you know, people that have a culture of cuisine behind them or a lifetime body of cooking uh, where it's respectful uh, you know, for other reasons, meaning like climate, community, that kind of stuff. I'd like to see that stuff as regarded in a way that doesn't necessarily just mean, you know, three Michelin stars and top 50 lists. Um, I feel like those are extremely out of touch. uh, And that's kind of what ends up fueling who gets to do what and how they get to get funding and how guests um, automatically say like how much they're going to be willing to spend on something. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if at the, at the top level things uh, will change in terms of who is uh, rewarded as well, you know, like looking at something like, uh, you know, Michelin or James Beard, you know, about how, uh, you know, who is rewarded and also why they're rewarded, whether we'll, yeah. see, we'll see rewards for good behavior included as well as good food. That would be ideal. I mean, it would be ideal to also bring in pay uh, for that. Um, there's a lot of restaurants, you know, like the Noma and Kenroka and all these kind of restaurants that have a staff of people, but they're not necessarily paying for all of them. You know, they're not, I mean, shit, I stodged at Noma twice. I saw exactly what happened there. Um, and I work for free, you know? So, you know, when you have 20, 30, 50 extra people in your kitchen that can just pick one little thing, <laughs> uh, and do that to make an iconic dish or something, um, then it begins to be like, well, you know, I have to compete with that on my level, but I actually have to pay for everybody. So that doesn't allow me to do a lot of the things that they can. Um, so that's a filter of it that needs to happen too. It's, it's exposing and being transparent with, yeah, that that restaurant's cool, but like, you know, they don't really pay anybody <laughs> or it's just a bunch of rich kids that, you know, parents pay for them to be there. It's, it's very similar to, you know, when people take internships in any job, it's usually the rich kids that come from a rich family that have a ton of resources, you know, and, and, the kids that don't, that may or may not have more talent have to go work at a fucking Denny's, you know? (laughs) And that's just, I mean, that's just how things go. And so that's the same thing on a restaurant level too, where, you know, I have to compete a lot of times with restaurants that have a bigger voice, meaning um, resources and PR and all this other stuff. Um, And they might set the trend for an extended period of time. 
um, and I can't get in just because I don't have those connections. You know, that's happened to me here for years uh, until I started to say like, fuck that (laughs) and kind of just go around it completely and air my grievances to anybody who will listen, I guess. Okay, that was Chef Eric Rivera. Next up is a conversation with travel editor Leslie Souter and Keith Corbin, the chef of Alta Adams in Los Angeles. Uh, This is interesting because Keith talks about what the costs are of doing the right thing and uh, how he's dealing with, I think, like a lot of the the external pressure to be outspoken in the industry. Like right now with COVID, it's kind of hard to even figure out how to negotiate a new understanding with your customer base, you know? People want one fair wage. People want stability. I mean, sustainability. People want good, fresh ingredients. The consumers want these, but are they willing to pay for it is the question. You know, because those things cost time at the farmer's market, dealing with farms, um, paying what paying a livable wage. Like those things cost. And is the consumer willing to see that reflect on the on the receipt as well? So that means prices gotta go up. Yeah. And that and that's the that's the big question is like will will consumers start to understand that the way the way that we've been eating and the prices we've been paying, somebody's suffering on on each end, and that you know food yeah. a good a a good restaurant quote unquote good on many levels that is both good to its employees, good to its community, good to the diner is going to cost going to cost money. Food's going to be more expensive. It's going to cost money. Yeah. yeah. To Do get you- that fish from dock to table, to get that them ingredients from farm to table. It's gonna cost more money. Do you think yeah, people? You're absolutely right. It's gonna cost more money. Do you think people will pay for it? Do you think the diner will ever come to understand? I can't predict that one. We'll see. <laughs> I know. Uh, but but what, but what you're saying is that for a restaurant, in the, for a good restaurant of the future, truthfully, it's gonna be thinking about all of those things. It's gonna be a a, a good restaurant in the future is gonna be thinking about um, livable wages. It's gonna be thinking about sustainable food. It's gonna be thinking about and hope and all of those aspects, um, assuming that the customers are willing to pay, that's the places where things can improve. Like right now, we um, that's our practice. We practice livable wages. We practice uh, equitable practices. We do one fair wage. We do share um, tip pool where everybody shares in the tips. It's not just the front of the house thing. Um, that's what else. That's what we do. Um, Farm the table. I go to farmers market three times a week. I I get to know the farmers, build relationships, order directly from them. Um, yeah, and so you know you, what? How do you We're do suffering. it? We're suffering. Oh, okay. We're suffering. <laughs> okay. I was gonna say, how are you making this magic happen? And then you're like, guess what? It's not. It's yeah. It's it's impossible. It's not profitable. Yeah. It's not profitable. But if you raised your pay, if you raised, you know, the check, I mean, in COVID, it's hard to do that. But let's say in normal well, just time. Even outside of COVID, just, just even outside of COVID, the stigma of prices and restaurants association with gentrification is hard. Yeah. You know, you, you charge a certain price and it's like you out, you're, you're, you're pricing the community out. Yep. You know what I mean? Or if you, if you, just if you're just inspired to go to a community that can afford it, then you're not investing equally across the board to all communities, right? 
you just stand on one side of the spectrum and then the community suffers. So it's just, it's a tricky balance that uh, we haven't figured out yet, but we still practice it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's imp- it's a really complicated balance because you're right, you raise the prices enough to make the formula work mathematically and you price out your community, which was the you next price thing. Out your community. Which was the next thing I was going to ask you about is like, what do you think in the ideal world a restaurant's role relationship is with its community? What's its, what's its role? Is it just a place to eat? Is it a gathering space? Is it, should everyone be welcome? Should, you know, who's, who's a restaurant for in 2025? And you know what? That's constantly changing. Um, and the expectation of chefs is constantly changing. This chef used to be able to just go in and, and create food, you know, and be, you didn't even really get to see the chef. Now this is all this interaction. Chefs are expected to be community activists and, uh, role models and um, shit. Pretty much a chef slash politician, you know. Yes. So the restaurant for me, my idea is the restaurant is a place for everyone. It's it's a place for communal community um, inclusion. Like I say, it's 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 a place to restore people, and in that restoration. Hopefully the community can be restored as well. It's a place to gather people of all cultures to come together and share in conversation and, and, and good food, you know? That's what the restaurant is for me. That's how I visited. That's how I grew up eating. My granny used to cook food and she cooked enough to feed the community. So you had people up and down the street that would come share in, these, in her dishes. You know, we'll be standing all out in the yard eating, sitting around the table. You know, my friends will be eating. My grandfather, her, and my grandmother, their friends. Like, we all, you know, it was a community thing. So, and that's just how I was raised. Food is for the community. It's not just for, it just doesn't belong to one person. And she never, she never worried about payback. She never worried about the cost. She always just worried about feeding people and bringing people together and laughter and, and eating. And that's how, that's my upbringing. And that's how I view the purpose of food is to restore people, to nourish people, and to bring people together as a family. And that's how I practice it. That's how I always will view it. For me, it's not even just a monetary gain. It's not even a monetary situation. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Next up here is Jenny again uh, with the academic and author Krishnendu Ray, and he's talking about really the vital importance of socialized healthcare if we want restaurants to survive, and gets into the the politics and the economics of mom and pop restaurants and uh, how they're going to get through this. A couple of things, of course, talking about restaurants right now. Uh, the biggest challenge is almost the catastrophic crisis, right? I think there's a recent Yelp study 
that shows that about 60% of restaurants have closed, mm-hmm. right? And uh, we just got news this week uh, that uh, new unemployment uh, applications have gone up by about 1.4 million. Uh, so, and a lot of it is going to be in the food service and in the hospitality business. And it looks like that um, that the uh, challenges of reopening are going to get are getting more complicated, simply because we have been so inefficient in managing the public health crisis, right? So, in some ways, almost like for me, it's impossible to almost think about anything other than the short term. So, I'm trying to I'm go- I'm going to try to think about a bit on the long run. So, the question immediately is the crisis, and the crisis is twofold. And I think we have to keep that in mind. It's a public health crisis and an economic crisis, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, most restaurants, there are about the count before, before COVID-19 was about, there were maybe around about 700,000 restaurants in the U.S., uh, food and uh, uh, drinks uh, establishment. And uh, we have seen a catastrophic decline of many of them. And most of them are working on very thin margins, uh, small businesses, uh, often run by uh, immigrants. And that has been the nature of this business uh, from the time we have data, which is from 1850 onwards. Foreign born have dominated baking, brewing, uh, small grocery stores, butchering, um, and what used to be called the saloon and the tavern business, and now the restaurant business. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, in that context, I think the first thing on my mind right now, because it's so immediate, is the discussion going on in Congress about the next uh, bill uh, to aid. Uh, small businesses. Uh, so that's going to be crucial. Mm, and uh, we have had the uh, uh, the CARES Act and we will need a second and maybe a third version of it, it looks like. And the big discussion right now is between somewhere between a $1 trillion to a $3 trillion bill. And the current apparent Republican version, there is lot of disunity there uh, is about a $1 trillion version. And one of the things they are targeting, for instance, is uh, the $600 per week uh, grant that people get if they are unemployed. And many people in the food service industry uh, are unemployed and they want to reduce it to somewhere near a more like $200 uh, grant a week rather than the current uh, $600 grant. So a lot of the discussion is going to be around that. And the Democratic uh, bill right now is a $3 trillion bill uh, and which wants to keep the $600 a week unemployment kind of top off over your state unemployment um, um, which in some states uh, like Mississippi, uh, there's a maximum like what, $235 or something to give you a sense. So a lot of the question is about, I think right now, short-term survival. Mm-hmm. And the survival, I think there is what, a threefold question in there. One is uh, paycheck protection. 
One is healthcare. Uh, who is in charge? How are we going to subsidize people to get tested? Tests are still backed up. My son, he just got a test almost a week ago. Uh, he hasn't uh, gotten his test back. Uh, backed up, there are massive bottlenecks in supply chains and in the labs. So the first is paycheck protection. The second is healthcare. Uh, and uh, a third one and a related one, which hasn't been the focus yet is how are these small businesses going to pay paying their rents mm -hmm. and their leases you know and so um, so in, in some ways the economic crisis is expressing itself primarily through rent uh, uh, lease questions uh, that that was always a problem before COVID-19 and that's what was driving people uh, small businesses out of business and uh, American states and cities don't generally have a particularly useful uh, uh, point of view on how to protect small businesses from excessive rent increases. Because in most cities, commercial rent, there's no control. So I think in the, in the medium and the long run, we will have to get there, which is we'll have to have some initiatives in terms of rent control or rent management. Uh, European cities have cities like Berlin. Uh, they have most European cities, especially in the north, have rules about how much you can raise in terms of rent um, uh, over lease periods. And I, for this business, food business, as a small business, which is a creative, interesting food. Uh, in terms of urban culinary culture, uh, we'll have to get to some policy orientation towards rent and lease. And some policy orientation, and this is the second point, healthcare coverage, right? And, and, and at least the healthcare coverage has been up for discussion since the Obama administration and its attempt to cover at least a lot of uh, the people who don't have health care. And that is going to be, I think, sorted out through the next election. Uh, so that's November. We will learn in January, February, whether we have a plan, we have a health care plan uh, that is adequate for about 50 to 60 million Americans who are either uninsured or underinsured, mm -hmm. right? And I have, and this is, it's not just, um, it's not just uh, uh, kind of a one day. I have a good friend of mine who is in the city here, who has been here for the last four months getting treated for cancer treatment, uh, always employed, uh, educator, uh, but um, didn't have good enough health insurance. So took a job, a full-time job with health insurance at much lower pay because of the coverage. Right? And that's, faced by about, I think, 60 million Americans. Um, more acute in the, in the restaurant industry. Uh, and I think, and this is, I think, the long-term long future, I think, we will have to think about socializing the cost of healthcare. That is, we cannot run this business on the back of people who are most vulnerable, vulnerable uh, politically, vulnerable socially, vulnerable uh, as people 
to basically healthcare risks, including COVID-19. And COVID-19 is one thing and uh, that has really signaled we are going to be here in different ways down the road will be the next virus. There's no way we are going to avoid the next virus from spreading the way we are globalized, the way people are in terms of dense urban clusters and the way human animal interactions um, have increased uh, and will increase uh, because of extension of human settlement into the wilderness, into forest and close proximity uh, and in, in which uh, different people and animals are interacting, will interact in the future of markets. So we will have to have some relationship between this business and healthcare. How are we going to provide healthcare to the people? And it is unlikely that the cost can be internalized into these small businesses, meaning small immigrant-run uh, uh, businesses with low capital investment. You know, the, the, the people I studied in my ethnic restaurant are, are people uh, patching together about 100,000 bucks in a city like New York City, between five to six people uh, as kind of, uh, as, uh, with stakes in the business. These are not the people who can provide healthcare and internalize that cost unless their uh, their price uh, point looks quite different. Mm. For ten ninety nine, all you can eat. Uh, Five dollar check averages, six dollar check averages. The people I'm talking about, uh, there's almost no way to internalize that cost. We have to socialize the cost of healthcare, which is a double thing. Uh, which sorry, it's noisy. No worries. Uh, uh, is is. It is about public health. If you're going to protect people, workers in the, uh, in the restaurant business, and if we're going to protect customers in the restaurant business, we have to have healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is in the long run and in the medium run, totally avoidable, unavoidable. Mm -hmm. And I hope we can solve it at least with this next election where we are going to basically make a decision about are we going to take away the uh, uh, what we have in terms of what is called Obamacare um, uh, or are we going to add to it? And the restaurant industry owners cannot can no longer be sitting on the sideline and arguing against the healthcare burden. They have to be arguing for a socialized healthcare. Why is it that you know the industry as a whole has sort of lagged behind in? you know, pushing forward for these sort of uh, policy changes that could only benefit, you know, the workers and, you know, public at large. And, and what is it that you think, and do you think they are now like as an industry, it is ready and prepared to, to make that push forward, to push over these more progressive policies? I'm, I don't think as an industry it's ready, but my thing is, my argument is it has to be ready. It has to, um, be. Has to be ready. And uh, this is the crisis uh, uh, that is also an opportunity. Uh, and there is basically no way out of it. Uh, and part of it, why it, I think it has been uh, retrogressive is I think it's a twofold part. I think this is a business 
of thin, narrow margins and undercapitalized business. And almost any other added burden uh, is very difficult to bear. And it, I think it cannot bear it uh, unless the question is socialized. And the second part, I think, is the lot of the leadership of representation of this business in Congress uh, has basically been a neoliberal laissez-faire business that basically wants to not talk about the real risks of doing business in this manner so that we can provide cheap food uh, quickly. So there's no way to just say, you know, make these, these 20, 30, $40 burgers, push the cost on the consumers and, and have that be, you know, absorbable and for the consumers to meet that those new costs, like for them to accept this new reality? I think some of it is going to be, you. we will have to shift the costs towards the customers, but not all of those costs can be internalized and have a sustainable business. And I think this leads to uh, another specific thing, which I think um, uh, in terms of the cost uh, and opportunity mix is the, uh, the app aggregators, the amount of skimming they do on the top Mm. Uh, you know, uh, where you need these, because one thing what's happening we are seeing is we're going to have, and this is an accelerant, uh, COVID-19 is a catalyst to what was already happening, mm -hmm. which is ghost kitchens delivery. That's the only part of the business that is really expanding. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a convergence between uh, what used to be called food service and retail business, right? Uh, and so retail business is selling cooked food, uh, grocery business is selling cooked food, and restaurants selling uh, boxed uh, curated uh, uh, produce, for instance, mm -hmm. which is a lot of high-end restaurants, in fact, are surviving and have survived this uh, uh, pandemic uh, through that. Um, and all of them depend on apps, Mm -hmm. to uh, get to their customers uh, and, and apps taking 30 percent uh, in terms of fees uh, to 15 percent kind of that's about the range uh, right now uh, is something that I think needs regulation mm. and it's a bit of uh, I think, uh, if not a monopoly, duopoly, or at least a couple of companies dominating that field. Mm -hmm. So we will need two things. We will need regulation. As cities are beginning to get into, we will see whether these survive the challenge in the courts uh, uh, in terms of, I think that percentage uh, of uh, fee has to come down uh, to 5 to 10%. Um, from 30 to 15%, uh, that's the range. And it'll happen in twofold ways. One, it'll happen at the level of uh, policy, at the level of laws, at the level of rules in the cities. Uh, it'll also ha happen at the level of, um, I think, uh, disruption in the marketplace itself. Mm -hmm. I, will, I think we will see initiatives, and there have been some initiatives to bring that new apps uh, into the market with lower uh, uh, kind of a skimming on top of it from below 10% mm -hmm. uh, in terms of both policy interventions and market interventions. There are people out there who are trying to make the change into a, 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 a rate for the apps uh, below 10%. And I think we will see a kind of 
um, a, a terrain in which you will see changes in that in the future for this business to work. My son was saying, I mean, my son is like a 19 year old. He's still like the perfect guy <laughs> who does all this, who orders everything on an app. Yeah. Uh, and he was saying, well, uh, bagel, Esa bagel, Mm-hmm. If he goes there, a bagel uh, that costs him about $15, if he orders this on its app, costs him about $26. And he's sensitive to that par- uh, price uh, uh, and, and that difference, as most people are going to be. So I think that's the, uh, uh, other than the broad immediate interventions and questions of healthcare. Uh, we also have this question. I think this is an emerging problem that was already there. Mm-hmm. Uh, restaurateurs were already complaining about it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we will both have, I think, entrepreneurial interventions in it and also law policy interventions around it. Uh, uh, and that's something to watch over the next few months, six months, a year, three year, as to what happens to this whole market uh, of aggregator apps uh, and 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 the, the the fees they charge. That is one aspect that I have not thought a whole lot about. So that's a really interesting um, thing to bring up, and I appreciate that. All right, Amanda. Up next, we have our final conversation. It is Jenny Zhang again in conversation with Chef Lucas Sin of Jun's Kitchen. Lucas talks about toxicity in kitchens and he talks about what his restaurant and other restaurants of his size and other even smaller restaurants can learn from huge corporate commercial kitchens and even even the fast food industry. Another thing that comes to mind is uh, toxicity in kitchens, uh, kitchen culture. Um, We have known for years, for ages and years, that the old European, maybe French way of yelling at people that is white male dominated is not chill. (laughs) It doesn't make food better. Plenty of people run restaurants in more productive and uh, ways where you you don't need to scream and abuse and yell to to, to make good food and to put good experiences out there. Um, That is certainly, uh, we've known this for ages. It surprises me that that still happens today. and but in order to fix it, we have to understand where like where cooks are coming from. And so what I'm thinking of is the, the progression, the career progression of what it means to be a chef. Most of the time you start in culinary school or trade school or something, or you don't start at all. And you start at the bottom as a dishwasher. You start working your way up. Um, you learn over the course of a lot of years how to make really, really good food in your particular station. But you but by the time you're a chef, there's a massive, incredibly huge gap between being the leader of a restaurant and the owner of a restaurant mm-hmm. and being a really, 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 really good cook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, there are aspects of business and leadership and culture that a lot of cooks just are not trained for before they become chefs. And we've kind of like, that plus the fact that chefs are largely seen as, like we, we, automat- we oftentimes automatic- automatically think of chefs as rock stars and personalities, discounts mm-hmm. the fact that they're not, a lot of the times they're not media trained, you know, they're not leadership trained and they're not cultural trained, but they're, they're, they are trained to make really good food and get better and better at making food. But suddenly you have to think about accounting, you have to think about hiring and firing, you have to think about uh, diversity, you have to think about um, service and, and all of those things that suddenly are thrust upon the leader of a company and there's no way to really learn that. Um, uh, up until that point. Mm-hmm. So that training, that, that sort of like progression is, is really difficult. And I don't know, and this might be a little controversial to say, not really, um, 
<laughs> but I, I can just imagine so many people in my head that would knock me for saying stuff like that. But you, you know, th this is a good time to turn to larger scale establishments um, like fast food and fast casual, mm -hmm. where that leadership training is really clear. They have understood and sort of engineered the operations procedures so well that they can break up a kitchen team into a team that's more efficient, but also, you know, people aren't just uh, segmented into specific uh, uh, roles like front of house or back of house. Like everyone's kind of cross-trained. And so that kind of leads me to like this third idea that there's a lot to learn from specifically fast food, fast casual type of restaurants from a business perspective. Um, the way the numbers just don't stack up for so many business models, um, especially those in the mid-tier like in New York City, that would be the equivalent of people charging between thirty and eighty dollars for 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 dinner. Mm. Um, like it just those numbers just so often don't stack up. I hate that Gabrielle Hamilton's article is maybe the only and most salient, you know, echo to that. But uh, you can you can talk to any business restaurateur, any like Soho um, restaurateur, and you can see that those numbers just do not stack up. Um, tipping is part of that. Like, like there is a question of tipping that 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 obscures um, uh, wages. There is uh, supply chain um, issues with sourcing and ingredients and stuff. Um, t rent is a huge part of it. Um, landlords, in my opinion, have a huge amount of control over the success of a business. And even before COVID, it was easy enough. But now nobody's really helping anybody out. So like all of those issues mean that those mid-tier restaurants, those full-service restaurants have it really, really tough and the business model will need to change. And so the question is, how do you change? I think a lot of fast casual models, um, fast casual businesses have some answers um, and they have a little bit of a leg up because they are a little bit more lean. They tend to be a little bit more lean and a little bit less rent dependent. They usually have a little bit more sway in different lines of product beyond just you know coming in for dinner which is an experience you know like cpg and stuff that is sort of like worth learning from um and that kind of leads me to my bigger idea and the thing i'm working with forbes on is that there is very very little cross communication between the different sectors of the food industry that um you know beyond the rage that we all have for the the, the roundhouse meeting of um, the type of people that made it into the White House to talk about the restaurant industry. Um, there is very little contact between the Thomas Kellers of the world and the Stevels of the world. Mm -hmm. Not Stevel anymore, but you know what I mean. Like Chipotle should be talking to the Cambodian noodle restaurants and they can should be able to help each other out. Um, uh, the same should be, like fine dining restaurants should be in conversation with people um, with uh, with people like us uh, or like with Kaba, right? There's, there's a lot of like this cross communication and there's a lot of things we can learn from each other that um, unfortunately doesn't exist because there isn't really the platform or an incentive up until this point to have those conversations. Now, um, the good thing from my personal perspective is that a lot of, um, there has been an increased amount of communication given COVID. Um, when lockdown in New York City happened, like a hundred and like a hundred WeChat groups and WhatsApp groups and FaceTime, Facebook groups like popped up where people are just sharing resources, trying to help each other out, trying to understand, you know, uh, everything from PPE to, to, um, uh, media, food, media scandals. And people just like want to like help each other out and like figure out what's going on. Right. And, that, and that's a great thing. You know, you, you know, for one, you see catering for once you see catering companies talking to like, uh, fried chicken joints and people mm -hmm. just want to like figure things out together, which is really, great to see and 
the positive thing is that I know we're going to be better because the hospitality industry's number one job is to take care of people, and um, I think they've demonstrated, by and large, that they are they are at least the people I've seen are very eager to take care of their their own, um, the other people in the industry, the, their own staff, um, and that sort of like sentiment. I think. Um, Call me an optimist, but I feel like that's maybe the most important thing is to remind ourselves that that's like our jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if any of this is like too vague for 2025, <laughs> but I have no, like the only real prediction I can make is that I have no doubt that um, a lot of these mid-tier restaurants are going to have to pivot to something more similar to fast casual where they, where they are able and they're a little bit more flexible. I think within these business models, people have to program um, flexibility. Um, whether that means that you should be able to pivot to other lines of products if need be, or that um, uh, you don't rely on a single type of um, cook or, or, or staff to operate the restaurant. Um, but that programming flexibility into your business model, I think, will be key um, come 2025. And without a doubt, I bet there are going to be less restaurants in 2025 than there are now. Thank you so much for listening to Eater's Digest. Uh, again, you can find the whole package. It's called Now What? Predicting the Future of Restaurants. It's live on eater.com. Uh, there's a lot more content on there. Thank you so much to all the editors and the chefs and academics. And Amanda and I will be back next week with something totally different. And uh, we will see you then. <laughs>